Good morning, everybody. It's really, really good to see everybody after having been away for quite a long time. Um, we've really enjoyed being able to visit with Eva's family and spend some time with the Bates in North Carolina. Um, but I have deeply, deeply missed just being able to be in Savannah, be able to be with all of you, and even outside of the assembly, just being able to be um, immersed in the work here and the relationships we have here. Um, and this lesson is going to be the, the final lesson in the series on Acts chapters 1 and 2. I don't have a PowerPoint for this lesson, so I'll try to mention any scripture references slowly and give everybody time to go there. Um, but this is going to be in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. It's going to finish the last part of that chapter. Um, and you may remember me having said this multiple times throughout this series, but I've heard of Acts chapters 1 and 2 referred to by older preachers as the hub of the Bible. Um, and a hub meaning like the center of all activity, um, like wheels have a hub where all of the axles and all of the pieces are all connected to a middle section that's spinning everything. The idea really is that everything that God had been doing from the beginning of time and even before then, God had always been looking forward to completing what happened in these two chapters. Not just that Jesus would be sent into the world to teach, to live, to die, to raise from the dead, but that he would ascend to his throne and establish a kingdom that would never again be overcome and never would be overcome so that then he could subject all people to the rule of God in heaven. We see all of this culminated in Acts chapter 2. Remember in the first chapter of Acts, Jesus was resurrected but still on earth. He instructed in verses 4 and 5 of the first chapter, he instructed the apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit to be sent upon them. And this happened in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, which would have been about 50 days after the Passover. Jews from all over the world were gathered together in Jerusalem for this event. So when the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit came, it came with three distinct signs that we looked at a few weeks ago. One was that there was this sound of a violent rushing wind that came from heaven and then filled the room where the apostles were. Then there were these tongues as of fire that rested upon them. And then when the crowd came together, they heard the disciples speaking in all of these different languages that they hadn't learned before. And this was a signal that Peter explained was demonstrating that this time that God had prophesied of in Joel, this is in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, where God had prophesied in the last days, I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And this was to demonstrate that there was a climactic time when salvation would reach its complete climax and judgment as well. And this in verse 21 would lead people to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. So in the last lesson in this series a couple weeks ago, we looked at how Peter explained that Jesus is the Lord that they need to call on. And Peter, with solid logic and evidence, had only presented them with the facts, that they were aware of Jesus and his ministry that happened in their midst. They're aware of the prophecies that predicted the kind of Christ that would come into the world, that he would be a descendant of David, that he would die but not suffer decay, that he would inherit the throne of God to reign forever. 
and that he would subject all mankind to God's rule and make them a footstool for his feet. So in verse 36, as we read in the scripture reading, Peter finishes the sermon in the most convicting way. He said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then in verse 37, they respond by asking what they should do. Peter tells them to repent, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the rest of this lesson is really going to be looking at how they valued that gift that they were given and the association that they had with God and with one another on the basis of that gift. A couple weeks ago, um, in the last lesson, I mentioned that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit that we learn about in this section is that this gift identified them And when we receive this gift in the same way, as it's mentioned in verse 39, that this promise was not just for them, but as many things in this section of Acts are a demonstration of a pattern that was going to be continued in all cultures and in all ages where the gospel would be preached. So the role of the Holy Spirit here, the gift of the Holy Spirit, it identifies a believer with giving them full access to God's promises through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit identifies us with and gives us full access to God's promises through Jesus Christ. The gift is a reconciled and perfect relationship with God. Now, it mentions that this is a gift. And really, how you respond to a gift depends on what it is. Um, To illustrate maybe like the value that they were placing on this gift and the importance of seeing the example of their response, just the nature of what's happening here. Um, I remember a few years ago seeing a documentary about a guy named David Hines, or Kevin Hines, rather. Um, He's someone who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. That bridge is about 250 feet from the water, and it's notorious for being a bridge where many people, when they um, are in a hopeless place in life, they'll jump off the bridge to end their life. Well, Well, Kevin Hines is one of about 37 people who survived that fall. And the reason why Kevin Hines, uh, the reason why his name is known is not just because he survived the fall, But as soon as he jumped, he realized what a mistake it was and regretted jumping immediately when his hands let go of the bridge. And so when he survived and recovered, he devoted the rest of his life to valuing his life and trying to prevent other people from committing suicide to see the value of their life. The reason I bring that up is having a near-death experience tends to rattle somebody or shake somebody to their foundation and really cause some deep, re-evaluation of value and priority. In verse 37, remember that when they heard this message, they were pierced to the heart. It was as if a vital organ had been punctured, and this was an emergency. These people were those who were present in the crowd when they were shouting, crucify Jesus. They would have seen Jesus hanging from the cross. And so they're hearing the message of the gospel was not just a passive thing. It was as if they had a vital near-death experience hearing this message that Peter had preached. 
And what we're going to see in the rest of this section is just as Kevin Hines, in a worldly way, completely reevaluated his life, in the same way these believers here who had received this gift were responding to that gift by completely reinvesting themselves into the kingdom of God, completely reevaluating their priorities and their habits. And everything we see here is a fruit of the repentance that is an example for us to follow as well. So another thing with this gift that they've received here and how you respond to a gift depending on what it is, just as Kevin Hines had a new opportunity at life that he utilized, the gift of the Holy Spirit is a new life. It's an opportunity for a new beginning. It's an opportunity for a new relationship with God. It's an opportunity to understand that there is a new culture that we're being brought into in the kingdom of God, new habits to form, new ways of thinking, new ways of interacting with the world around us, a new motivation that we have to live our lives. And just as Kevin Hines understood the value that he had in his life in a worldly way, so much more, the people here understood how valuable they were to God, and that was the foundation that they were setting themselves on for their new lives with God here. So Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 42. We'll read these and get into our next point. Here we see four fundamental habits of this new life they had with God and a demonstration of how they were using this gift that they were given. Uh, Verse 41 and 42. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So four things that they were devoting themselves to here. One, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching first. What we see here, and what you may have noticed from the scripture reading, is the apostles' leadership is emphasized heavily in verse 42 and 43. We'll talk more about the miracles they were performing um, in a moment in the next point. But if you turn back to John chapter 16, um, this is just a good verse to kind of have in memory or mark as to why the teaching of the apostles was so significant here. John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15 This is a promise that Jesus made in a conversation that's more focused on the apostles. And there are some things that Jesus says at the end of his life here in John's gospel that are more general statements. But here is a more specific statement that relates to the role of the apostles and I think gives light to why the people in Acts chapter 2 were specifically devoting themselves to what the apostles were teaching. John 16:12 through 15. This is Jesus telling the apostles, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So in verse 13, 
What is Jesus predicting will happen when the Spirit comes? Jesus is looking forward to when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide the apostles into all truth. And in verse 14, he will glorify Jesus because he will take of mine and disclose it to you. So what do we learn about the role of an apostle in this passage in John and what Jesus was defining as their role? The apostles spoke by the authority of Jesus, his truth. Now, one of the most primary roles of an apostle is they would speak Jesus' words with Jesus' authority. And what we'll see is miracles were a testimony to distinguish that authority from the Jewish religion of that time to show how unique their message was as being directly from Jesus. We see this fulfilled as well in reflection in Ephesians chapter 3. Um, this is another passage that's good to have just, again, just in terms of memory, marking this verse as a good way of remembering the importance of the apostles, the message that they preached, and the inspiration that they claimed they had from God. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And remember, this is, again, looking at Acts chapter 2 and thinking about why were they devoted specifically to the apostles' teaching? Why were they focused on what these men had to say? Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. For this reason, remember, Paul being an apostle of Jesus, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of man, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So in John 16, Jesus is looking forward to the spirit of truth, revealing that truth through the apostles. And then Paul as an apostle in Ephesians is reflecting on how this has been accomplished. That this word that was being written was scripture inspired by God being written through the hand of the apostle Paul. So back in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 With these four fundamental habits, the first being that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Beyond the fact that the apostles' teaching was authoritative and inspired by God, these were people who were hungry to learn. Do you remember the first three Beatitudes that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5? Jesus began his first sermon in Matthew's gospel, really in the same process of the events here. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly what we see when they heard the message. They were pierced to the heart. They were broken in spirit. And then Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you can see that the believers here had sorrow for their sin and what they had done to Jesus. And they had sorrow when they heard their guilt being drawn out through the message preached. But then... Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
If we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we're looking for opportunities to be taught and learn the message of God's word. We want to find more opportunities to learn what God has to say. We want all of God's truth to be understood. We want to find opportunities to learn with our brethren and read God's word with our brethren. We want to make these things habits of our lives. You think about when somebody's wanting to change their diet. Oftentimes changing a diet isn't necessarily adding some new meal plan into your routine, but just changing what you're already doing and just adding something different into what you're already doing. And so the same is with wanting more opportunities to learn what God's word says. It could be instead of something you're doing in the morning, reading God's word for 10 extra minutes. It could be instead of watching TV for 30 minutes, spending 30 minutes meditating on God's word. And so what you see here is they weren't just doing this in an isolated way, though. This is something they were devoted to together. The second thing we see them doing together is they were devoting themselves to fellowship. There's one verse that I think really summarizes the nature of what biblically fellowship looks like. That's in Philippians 1, verse 27. Uh, Philippians 1, verse 27, if you'll turn in your Bibles there. Philippians 1, verse 27. And this, this is in reference to them devoting themselves to fellowship. Um, fellowship is, like many terms in the Bible, it's very open to misinterpretation and wrong applications. Fellowship can oftentimes be uh, changed into something that is merely social and fun, um, whereas in scripture, fellowship is a term that's used to refer to our fellowship with Jesus in spiritually meaningful ways. Philippians 1.27 Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. I think that summarizes what's going on in Acts chapter 2. That the people who were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching were also of one mind and one spirit, striving together for the faith that they had just received from the gospel. What we see is them working together to spread that faith, to cultivate that faith, to encourage each other in that faith. So fellowship looks like deliberate effort to encourage the partnership that we have with Jesus in spiritual ways. It might look like having spiritually centered conversations with each other, sending each other encouraging text messages, praying together like we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 as well. But they were interested in cultivating the purpose and partnership that they had with Jesus. The third thing that we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, if you'll turn back there. The third habit that they were devoting themselves to was the breaking of bread. Now, there's really two ways that the breaking of bread can be understood. One is it can be understood to be a religious meal. That would be in reference to the Lord's Supper. Or it can be in reference to simply social get-togethers, um, social eating. We see that more in verse 46, where they were taking their meals from house to house. That seems like it's a more normal kind of setting. 
Um, it seems pretty unanimous when I've heard this verse taught by brethren and even like looking at what most people would, would say in commentary, it seems really unanimous that most think this is uh, referring in verse 42 to the Lord's Supper. I'm prone to think that way as well because it seems distinct from verse 46 and the normal eating in verse 46. I'd like to suggest that it fits the context of the focus in verse 42 that it would be referring to the Lord's Supper. Another place in Acts that you see this is Acts 20, verse 7. Acts 20, verse 7 is a verse that um, is uh, a passage that we use to um, notice the pattern that they partook of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week particularly. So in Acts 20, verse 7, notice the similarity of language here. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them intending to leave the next day and he prolonged his message until midnight. So Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 though, um, if this would be that they were devoting themselves to partaking of the Lord's Supper, I think there's a very fundamental reason why that's important. And it gets back to even the fundamental principle of a covenant. Covenants, they begin with commitment. And we've seen that already here, that a part of their repentance is they've clearly committed themselves to the Lord. They've committed themselves to one another. They've committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. So covenants begin with commitment. More than the commitments they've made, the gift of the Holy Spirit is God committing himself to those who submit themselves to the gospel. We talked about a couple weeks ago how God's response to the tragedy of their crime against Jesus was to offer them a greater commitment than he had ever offered before. That God was going to be more committed to them than he had been even to David, Abraham, that the commitment of God to those who are a part of the new covenant is, exceeds anything that was possible before. So commitment is how a covenant begins, but it's sustained by memory. Covenants begin with commitment, but they are sustained by memory. Why is it so important that we devote ourselves to the breaking of bread in terms of the Lord's Supper? Because fundamentally, we are sustaining our covenant with God, remembering the purpose and the nature of that covenant. That God has committed himself to us through the death of his son. We're remembering his body that was broken for us on the cross. We're remembering the blood that was shed that gives us the access to forgiveness of sins. And in that remembrance, we are renewing our covenant with God on a weekly basis and renewing our commitment to God. And so they were devoting themselves to the breaking of bread, renewing their covenant and their rem the memory of that covenant with God. The fourth habit we see them devoting themselves to is prayer. We talked about this a little bit back in chapter 1, verse 14. You remember that before the day of Pentecost, when they appointed Matthias to replace Judas, before they had that conversation, they were devoting themselves continually to prayer. Prayer is one of the most fundamental ways that our fellowship is bound together and grows when we're together. And I mentioned a few weeks ago when we had talked about that, 
that we need to be looking for more opportunities to include prayer in our time together. Even if it's something quick and seemingly unsubstantial in the time that we devote to it, just praying together, even just for a moment, just including it in some small way, is extremely meaningful in how it cultivates an awareness that our relationship with God can be something that we can continually access together in those ways. And so we need to be striving to cultivate these four habits fundamentally in our relationships together. If we value the gift of the Holy Spirit, this is the model of how to respond to that gift if it's valued. Valuing the gift of the Holy Spirit looks like devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. It looks like devoting ourselves to fellowship and prioritizing these relationships that we have access to together. It looks like devoting ourselves to opportunities to come together on the first day of the week when possible and partake of the Lord's Supper and prioritize that. It looks like devoting ourselves to prayer and bringing God praise together, requesting that God help us and empower us in fulfilling his purpose while we're here, seeking for his kingdom to come and conquer in this community and in our lives and thanking God together for the rich blessings of salvation that we have together, and interceding for those who need help around us. These people who were in Jerusalem at this time, they were the beginning of a wildfire movement that started with these fundamental habits that spread the gospel in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth in one generation. So verse 43 through the end of the chapter. We see these four fundamental habits, but we also see mutual generosity as a part of the beginning of the church here. Verse 43 through 47. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So one quick note in verse 43. In this series, I've tried to focus on some doctrinal points that are really clearly established here in the first two chapters of the book of Acts. And there's a point of emphasis here in verse 43 that I'd like to pause and note before we talk more about the events that happen here. Everyone was feeling a sense of awe, and many signs were taking place specifically through the apostles. Something I'd like to look at briefly here is the importance of seeing the role of the apostles in the miracles that they could exclusively perform and pass on. In the book of Acts, it's carefully followed that the only people who could perform external miracles like healing, performing signs and wonders in an external way, that they had always had contact with an apostle and had an apostle lay their hands on them. Look at Acts chapter 6. So earlier in the book of Acts, you have Peter in chapter 3 heal a lame man. 
And this becomes a noteworthy miracle. But in Acts chapter 6, we begin to see other people with the ability to perform miracles as well. Look at Acts chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. This is when they appointed seven men to help with the distribution of food when the Hellenistic Jewish widows were being neglected. It says, The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenes, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So after the word continued to spread in verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Well, if you look back at verse 5, Stephen was one of the men whom the apostles had laid hands on. It's not until after that it notes that he performed miracles. Another example of this, notice in verse, notice in verse 5, one of the names in the middle is Philip. If you turn to Acts chapter 8, above verse 4, you may have a notation that says Philip in Samaria. In verse 9, when Philip is in Samaria preaching, there was someone named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great, and they all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. They were giving him attention because he for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now notice this in verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began doing what? Laying hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now notice this, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now Philip was already there with them. Philip could perform miracles. But it wasn't until the apostles came from Jerusalem that anybody else could receive those gifts as well. Because it's through the hands of the apostles that that gift was given. One more note on this is Hebrews chapter 2. Um, and with Hebrews chapter 2, I just want to say one more thing about why this matters. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Uh, we'll start in verse, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So what was the purpose of miracles in verse 4? 
God was testifying to something with those signs, as they're called, and wonders. The apostles primarily were men given the responsibility to deliver inspired truth. And miracles were a sign that this teaching was coming directly from the authority of Jesus himself. And if that authority and that inspired teaching was coming through the apostles, then once the apostles were gone, the teaching was fully delivered. And if the miracles were for the purpose of testifying to the teaching, once the teaching was fully delivered, then there's no longer need for that testimony as the teaching had been completely delivered. So back to Acts chapter 2. Um, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the apostles were performing miracles that were continuing to testify that these were men speaking and acting on the direct authority of Jesus himself. So everybody who believed had all things in common and they were selling their property and possessions. The significance of this is difficult to understand just in this context alone. It's amazing that they were willing to let go of things that they had purchased before, things that were their livelihood. But in the law of Moses, if you go to Leviticus or the book of Numbers, there will be passages that will deal with laws of inheritance, where these would have been properties passed down from one generation to another as a security for a lineage of people. And so they were giving up their ancient heritage by selling these things and giving it all away so that those who were traveling to Jerusalem and strangers there could remain there and receive help to continue in their devotion to what they had now been hearing. Think a way to maybe think about the, um, the nature of this. When I was living in Minnesota in around 2010, 2012, there was an oil boom in North Dakota. People were literally traveling from all over the country on a whim to go to North Dakota and get a job working in the oil fields that were booming in North Dakota. People were living out of their cars. And there were people to mon mo monopolize the opportunity. They would bring like trucks that they had turned into like showers and they would charge people incredible amounts of money to take a shower because there wasn't housing, there wasn't apartments, there weren't businesses. People were literally just traveling on a whim to get to North Dakota as fast as possible and take advantage of the booming oil industry that was there before other people came in. And so they were abandoning everything they had and they were willing to stay there because what they had there, they deemed as worth losing all of these other things that they had before because the gain of that oil they saw as a greater security than what they left behind. So think about all the people from the beginning of this chapter who it says came from all over the world to Jerusalem for Pentecost. They didn't come to Pentecost expecting to now live in Jerusalem. So what was keeping them there? To these people who had traveled from all over the world, being able to stay with the apostles who were speaking God's word, that was more valuable to them than oil coming from the ground. It's like Psalm 19. 
It says, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. The worth of just getting to hear what we read easily. Think about an epistle like Philippians. You think about what they had to give up just to be able to listen to the teaching of an apostle, how valuable a treasure it was to them, how much they were willing to give up just to hear more of that message. It's incredible. And again, it shows the value that they placed on the gift that they received. Their land was not their security. Their possessions were not their security anymore. The kingdom of God, Jesus, was now their security. And these people clearly understood that that was a security that could not be taken away from them because that gift had greater value. Just like people were leaving different parts of the country to go to North Dakota and stay there and abandon everything and be dirty and need to pay a lot of money for a shower. More than that, the people here understood that the apostles were teaching them what they could not get anywhere else in the world. It's amazing. One last thing. The money that was being collected here had a special purpose. So there was communal care that what they were giving to one another. But the purpose of selling their property and possessions and giving them as anyone would have need was to support devotion to the Lord. And I think it's important to note that in Scripture, there is a pattern that begins here that we see consistently. And so turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Um, this is a seemingly very simple, but it is a very important point. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. So Paul to the Corinthians, seemingly dealing with a related principle, a similar principle to what we read in Acts chapter 2. Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed of the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting, they will go with me also. So this is related to um, something we see in the book of Acts when there's a prophet who stands up and mentions that there will be a great famine in Jerusalem and they determine to send relief to the needy saints there. Paul encourages the Corinthians to participate in that as well. But in verse 1, notice who that uh, help is specifically going to go to. The collection would be for the saints. So this is just an important doctrinal note, that in Scripture, when there is a local collection, we never see it being used just to be dispersed out into the community at random. We never see it being used to be uh, supporting social functions or social events. It's always something that's being used for spiritual purposes and it's used for the needs of saints specifically to support the work of God and the support of the ministry of his word. So in Acts chapter 2, we see that pattern beginning in the way that they are treating one another and selling their property and caring for each other 
so that there can be devotion to the Lord, devotion to his word, and devotion to one another. So this culminates in verse 47, that the community of believers here were praising the Lord and God was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. If we can follow this pattern fundamentally, this church will thrive. And if you're somebody who makes resolutions in a new year, if you're reflecting on your priorities or considering things that you might do differently this year compared to the last, I would encourage you to think about what you see fundamentally in these verses in this chapter, especially verse 42. What are ways in this new year that you can be more devoted to the apostles' teaching? What are ways in this new year that you can be more committed to having fellowship with your brethren here? Or what are ways in this new year that you can think more reverently and and understand better the importance of our relation together that's embodied in partaking the Lord's Supper together? Or prayer? What are ways in this year that you can devote yourself more to prayer with your brethren and prioritize that, that practice when we're together? So I'd encourage you to think about ways that we can more effectively be more like what we see here as a pattern so that this church can grow to the fullness of Christ so that in every way we can work together to honor Jesus and what's been done for us through him. So that will conclude our series looking at Acts chapters 1 and 2. I hope that that was helpful in equipping you um, just to value more what God has done to bring the gospel to us today even and convicted you to take more steps to walk in the pattern that we read of in God's word. So if there's any way that we can help you this morning, whether it be in obedience to the gospel or bringing sin forward that we can help you overcome, we'd be happy to assist you in any way that we can as we stand and sing an invitation song.